I'm John Ellis. And I'm Rebecca Darst. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, it's the News Items Podcast. Bringing you news items from our three major storylines, a world in disarray, the financialization of everything, and advances in science and technology. We'll start with two stories from the world of science and technology. Then we'll move on to the news items. First, President Biden has announced the U.S. will be pulling virtually all troops from Afghanistan by September 11th. Then, how one Shanghai hedge fund manager went all in on leverage and on criticizing Ray Dalio. And third, if the Suez Canal blockage reminded us of anything, it's of just how opaque the shipping industry really is. After the break, I interview my cousin, Jeb Bush, about Florida, the state he served as governor for two terms. Okay, let's start with those science and tech headlines. First, STAT reports that HealthCare's Mayo Clinic is forming two companies to collect and analyze data from patients connected to monitoring devices. A top Mayo official said the goal is to progress, quote, from episodic care to continuous care. This is an obvious evolution for healthcare. Instead of making trips to the hospital, your doctors could collect information on your vitals and other health signals on an ongoing basis. Mayo's two companies plan to analyze that patient data with artificial intelligence to inform treatments and even anticipate medical problems before they arise. John, the future of healthcare right here, the Mayo Clinic? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a nonstop test. The sooner you're able to intervene and diagnose that someone is a 78% chance of having a heart attack in the next year, if you intervene before that and correct it, if you will, that will save a lot of money. Um, What it tells you is to invest in uh, Amazon Web Services because all of this (laughs) – there are two things, right? It it requires big pipe Mm -hmm. and it requires huge servers and server farms. All right. Let's do it. Our problems are solved. Next, the Wall Street Journal reports that on a per capita basis, Canada's seven-day average of confirmed COVID-19 cases has recently surpassed the U.S.'s. Hospitals in Ontario are especially hard hit. Canada has been terribly slow to deliver vaccinations. Per capita, it lags many European countries and is below the world average, according to Johns Hopkins University's tracker. The more contagious U.K. variant is another factor in the surge. Yeah, we've said this before, but it's the vaccines versus the variants. And uh, Mm -hmm. at the moment, in a number of countries, Brazil, India, the variances are winning. Yeah. Troubling indeed. That's it for our science and tech headlines. Now let's get to our news items. First, John, in our World in Disarray storyline, President Biden on Wednesday announced the full withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan over the next few months. The deadline, 9-11, the 20th anniversary of the attacks that spurred the U.S. into military action in the first place. The Washington Post reports there are currently about 3,500 U.S. troops in Afghanistan and another 7,000 troops belonging to NATO. Here's how President Biden put it. American troops shouldn't be used as a bargaining chip between warring parties in other countries. You know, that's nothing more than a recipe for keeping American troops in Afghanistan indefinitely. John, what does this decision mean for the region and for the world? Well, for the region, it means that the various tribes, warlords, political blocs in Afghanistan with the U.S. leaving, now have to realign themselves to prepare for a Taliban uh, regime. That's extremely bad news, especially for women. They'll be set back a century, if not more. Sounds like you are fairly confident that the Taliban will take Kabul. Is that right? 
I am. I mean, they control half the country now, and the government, the current regime, is corrupt. It's incompetent. Nobody's going to bet on that horse. Uh, everybody's going to bet on the Taliban horse, and so the Taliban will. They will win. So U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has characterized his and President Biden's approach to foreign policy with two words, humility and confidence. Are those two words compatible in a coherent foreign policy, or is the Biden administration going to have to choose? One of the things that's that's interesting about the decision or important to know about the decision is that it will be politically popular in the United States. Mm -hmm. The president will enjoy you know, majority support for his decision to withdraw. Mm -hmm. You know, the political support for defending Taiwan or defending Ukraine isn't there. So, you know, you can be humble, uh, <laughs> you can be <laughs> confident, you can be humble, yeah. humble and confident. But the truth of the matter is, is if you do not have the support of the electorate, mm -hmm. your options are very limited. You sort of couched the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan in terms of what it signals to China and Russia about U.S. appetite for foreign engagement. And I wondered, aside from the signal value to those other major countries, is U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan directly destabilizing to Afghanistan and the region overall? What's interesting is that it creates this opportunity. There are two big opportunities in terms of money. Mm -hmm. One is narcotics mm -hmm. and the other is rare earths. And the question is, who is going to come in to grab market share in those two, quote, industries, end quote? Nobody good. And the answer is a lot of different people, uh -huh. right? Uh, probably India, probably China, probably Russia, maybe even Iran. Mm -hmm. And... That is certainly destabilizing, especially for the people of Afghanistan. The good news is that we will maintain a presence. It's supposedly to protect the embassy, but one certainly hopes that the point of keeping a presence there is to help those Afghans who helped us mm -hmm. get out of the country and get them into the United States. That'll be a enormously revealing about this administration and about us as a people, if mm -hmm. we leave our friends in Afghanistan on the ground in Afghanistan, if we don't help them come to the U.S., mm -hmm. then they will be slaughtered. Mm -hmm. It would be unconscionable not to do that. And it's unclear to me that we absolutely will do that. Mm -hmm. So let's go to our financialization of everything storyline. Bloomberg reports on a Shanghai hedge fund manager who put up her own money to increase leverage and ended up with an industry-leading 258% gain last year. Li Bei, who is 37, says she owes this success to ditching her initial approach, sticking to Bridgewater founder Ray Dalio's low volatility strategy. Li Bei adds that this approach, quote, just doesn't work in China. Okay, let's start with <laughs> Lee Bay. Okay, she okay. has what seventy-five million dollars on uh, assets under management. Yeah, seventy-six million dollars in assets under management. So That's why right. in the world do we care what she thinks <laughs> about anything? Well, you know, because she's trash talking Ray Dalio pretty directly. Why is she trash talking Ray Dalio? Okay, because Bridgewater has grown faster than probably any other hedge fund in China. It's moved into 
the Chinese market very aggressively. And Ray Dalio is very well known for his quote-unquote all-weather approach. So he's a global macro trader. He trades sort of top-down. He trades heavily in the fixed space. So you're looking at asset classes that move with macroeconomic developments like fixed income and currencies and commodities, etc. But he uses this very diversified low-volatility approach to maintain benchmark beating uh, returns on an annualized basis and very limited volatility. So that strategy has worked fairly well for him for a number of years. He's moved into China, you know, attracting investors in China. And this particular hedge fund manager who runs a much smaller fund took a totally different approach in 2020 and had success with it. Would we extrapolate that to say that that is a track record? I would say no. She sort of followed the narrative of COVID, you know, short in January, risk on mid-year, betting on uh, Asia-Pacific, sort of leading the global economic recovery. Good for her. Do you think that an institutional investor who not only wants positive returns but doesn't want to take a lot of risk to get there, are they going to go all in with Li Bei? I would not bet on that. What I think what's bold is her statement that it's not just that she did the opposite of what Ray Dalio did. What she's saying is that Ray Dalio's approach is not right for China. That's trash talk. That's just trash talking Ray Dalio. I guess that's the thing I don't really get. So she wakes up one day and Mm -hmm. she says, I've had these spectacular returns. I've levered myself up to, you know, some ungodly amount. And so what I think I'll do is I'll call Bloomberg and say, Ray Dalio doesn't know what he's doing. It seems so odd. Look, good for her for the 2020 return. I mean, you got lucky on the macro narrative in 2020. You know, she doesn't have a long-term track record. I mean, this is this is sort of being on the right side of the narrative as it pertained to COVID. Um, but that's a lot of leverage, and people blow up with that kind of leverage all the time. Well, she's definitely on the news items radar. We're gonna we're gonna track her. Moving on from too big to fail, perhaps not to too big to sail. <laughs> Let's, <laughs> John, our last news item falls into our world in disarray storyline. Surely you remember the ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal a few weeks ago. The blockage captured the world's attention and ended up costing the economy, the global economy, a whopping $9.6 billion per day. But today, in today's news items, you shared a story from the London Review of Books in which John Lanchester details how influential, efficient, and cheap the shipping industry is. He writes, quote, "'Shipping is, in practice, free.'" Why did this story stand out to you on the news items editorial desk today, John? <laughs> <laughs> I've been a fan of John Lanchester for forever. And this book review compares the global shipping industry to the Internet and calls it the uh, Internet of Things. And yeah, because usually when we say Internet of Things, we're referring to something else, right? Yes. He's sort of suggesting this is the re- shipping is the real Internet of Things. Yes, exactly. It's As the quote goes, it's 90% of everything. Mm-hmm. You know, you see those when that picture of the boat trapped in the Suez Canal was just one container stacked on top of another. Mm-hmm. And the combination of, of the container industry and these global shipping companies make it possible for a shirt that is made in Thailand to be on the shelf in New York City. And the cost of the transit of that shirt is probably a penny. Mm-hmm. And that's had a dramatic impact, obviously, on sourcing, mm-hmm. because if you can make a shirt in Taiwan 
for much less money than you can in Wisconsin, then you're sort of reordering the global economy. And uh, the global shipping industry has reordered the global economy. The big point that he makes is you don't think about it, but it's as important as the internet is to the uh, economic activity all around the world. You know, I thought what was interesting about the Lanchester article that you linked in news items was the arcane structure of the global shipping industry. I think he points out the way that shipping is controlled by a tiny clutch of legacy families in different countries, and yet internationalized to the point that you don't really know who this ship belongs to, or really there's no clear chain of liability or responsibility. The Ever Given, for example, built by a Japanese company, owned by a subsidiary of that same Japanese company, both of which are owned by a Japanese family. The ship is then leased to a Taiwanese company, which is run by a Hamburg-based company, owned in turn by another German shipping family. It flies under the Panamanian flag, and its crew is almost entirely Indian. It's essentially its own state, right? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't answer to anybody. It's sort of in this alternative legal and regulatory yeah. environment where no laws or regulations really apply. Yeah, I mean, it is such a, and, you know, again, to circle back to your reference to the internet, I mean, can you imagine the quote-unquote internet being owned by 10 families around the world and then licensed out to 30 other legal jurisdictions. I mean, it's just, it's such a strange animal, the shipping industry. It really is. It yep. really is. You know, Zuckerberg would like the internet to be owned by his family, but uh, <laughs> that, that's not going to work. Yeah. So that's it for the news items today. Next, John, I understand you spoke to former Governor Jeb Bush recently about the Sunshine State. Of Florida. I talked to him yesterday. He said he didn't want to talk about Republican Party politics or okay. Donald Trump. <laughs> I couldn't imagine why. Um, <laughs> so yeah. I said, well, we don't have to talk about that. We can talk about Florida. Okay. He was the governor there for two terms. Mm -hmm. And Florida, under, under Jeb's leadership and then under the leadership of the governors that followed him, has exploded economically, uh, demographically. I think it's almost twice as big as it was when Jeb first took office. Mm -hmm. And it, that presents, obviously, all sorts of challenges, and he talks about that in the interview. Yeah. Jeb was somebody who loved policy perhaps even more than he loved politics. So it's a policy-oriented interview, and I think our listeners will enjoy it. We'll hear John's conversation with Governor Jeb Bush after a quick break. Welcome to today's interview. We have as our guest Jeb Bush, the former governor of Florida, and I should point out uh, my first cousin, Jeb and I have known each other, obviously, for a very long time. <laughs> the questions that we're going to ask have to do with Florida and how the state has changed. He first ran for governor in 1994, so why don't we start there? What was the Florida that you ran for governor for in 1994, and how does it compare to the Florida of today? Florida in 1994 was a state that was fast growing. It was probably the fastest growing state, but it wasn't, it had not developed uh, deep roots in terms of a diversified economy, uh, strong sense of community. It was a place that people came to visit. 
back then we had a thousand people a day moving into the state, but we had the third highest number of people leaving and the highest number of people moving in. So it was a state where everybody was from someplace else. There wasn't a sense of community. It's still a challenge for our state, but over time, you know, the relocation of businesses has solidified the economy. The economy is more diversified for sure. Our business climate has yielded uh, pretty good results. The university system has improved dramatically. Our K-12 system was literally at the bottom of the heap, 50th out of 50 in terms of high school graduation rates, and, and those have seen marked improvements as well. Commitment to infrastructure, commitment to the natural environment, all those things have been a bipartisan commitment, really. And so I think Florida's better off today than it was in 1994. One thing I've uh, sort of struck me about Florida is obviously you have waves of immigration. 60% of Miami-Dade County is not born in Florida or in the United States. How is it that immigration in Florida seems so much less contentious and difficult, if you will, than it does elsewhere in the country? I would say that it's under the surface. There are concerns about illegal immigration in Florida, but generally, because Republicans have done better with immigrant groups, their voices are heard. There's greater awareness, greater sensitivity, because Hispanics have traditionally been part of the team. The lieutenant governor of the state, Jeanette Nunez, is uh, of Hispanic origin. So the rewards of creating kind of conflict in the immigration debate aren't as apparent here as they are maybe in out in the, you know, Arizona or California. And our border is different. Our immigration, you know, comes either through the Mexican border, people coming illegally take this torturous route through Mexico and then all the way around the Gulf of Mexico into Florida, or they come by boats. They're truly our refugees. So it's a different feel for sure. And I'm proud of the fact that elected officials don't get rewarded for saying stupid things about immigration. I'm kind of happy that's the case. I have a a friend at Goldman Sachs named John Rogers, who's the vice chairman of Goldman. And he said that he thought that financial services companies in general uh, would be able to do what they do with one third less real estate. And that because of what they've learned from COVID, they could also do what they do with more people living where they wanted to live. And I wonder if this influx that we read about of New Yorkers going to Florida, setting up shop, I'm thinking particularly of Elliott Management, where a friend of mine works, but also J.P. Morgan Chase and others. Are you seeing financial services move to Florida in big numbers? And do you think that'll eventually it'll become sort of a second Wall Street? Yeah, the tradition of people moving have been, you know, you buy your home here, you're semi-retired, you live here part-time, and then you become a permanent resident. This is a new trend of younger people moving with the recognition, as you said, that you can live anywhere. And the place is welcoming. You know, it's it's very different. Francis Suarez is, is a young, dynamic mayor of the city of Miami. And, you know, he sends a signal to the tech sector, come, you'll be welcome. We invite you. The places where the innovators exist, if they if you look at the states where they reside, There's a hostility to their success. The mindset in Florida is very different. And because of that, because we're more welcoming, I think we're getting a deeper surge of people that are aspiring to a better life. You know, when you're rich, you can live anywhere you want. If you've already created your wealth and made it, the burdens of states that are hostile to to your interests, 
you know, you can organize yourself around it. But if you're aspiring to success, aspiring to make a difference in society, aspiring to build a, you know, a net worth for your family, it's hard to do it when, when the environment around you is very hostile. So the states that are, haven't figured this out are suffering. New York State, I guess, is planning to increase taxes on high-income people. It makes no sense to me, particularly since there's this massive transfer of money from the federal government to states and local governments to deal with COVID. This is not the right time, I don't think, for states to be raising taxes. But the minute they do it, it just creates another surge of people voting with their feet and moving down here. I always wanted to ask you, when you were governor, you knew that a hurricane was coming. What did you do? I mean, what did you physically do? You knew the hurricane was going to hit, you know, let's say you were there on Friday and you knew it was going to hit on Saturday. How did you oversee the rescue operation? I mean, 2004, 2005, we had eight hurricanes and four tropical storms. So we were recovering from the storms of 2004 when the storms of 2005 hit. And we were preparing for these storms. There was an enormous amount of work, staging of personnel, staging of generators, tarps, water. All of that has to be coordinated out of an emergency operations center. And there has to be complete coordination and communication with local and county governments. When you're in a leader, public leadership position, the part of the job that is the most fulfilling is when people really need your help. Right. Not when you're implementing your five-point plan that most people don't care about, although I you know, was pretty passionate about my five-point plans. When a hurricane was approaching, there was a sense of urgency. Just It was really fulfilling in, in so many ways. And I had a rule that when the wind subsided, I would be on the ground wherever the hurricane hit. It was a logistical challenge to do it, but part of the job of being governor is to show you care, you know, and the best right. way to show you care is to be, is to be there. There were a lot of things I learned from one, you know, hurricane to the next as it related to special needs shelters. How do you get power back on? How do you pre-stage things in a more effective way? How do you get the evacuation routes to make sure that they're powered up first? How do you make sure that gas stations are operational? I mean, we had periods where there was literally no gasoline in gas stations and people were hoarding because they were fearful of not having the ability to access gasoline. So there's just a whole myriad of public health issues, economic issues, giving people a sense that things are going to be better issues. And to be honest with you, this is something Florida does really well. It's not the governor's, you know, I mean, every governor steps up to the plate and does does it in a different way. But we have an infrastructure in place here that is well-trained, well-financed, if you will. Uh, and I'm really proud of the first responders that we have. One quick story, John. When Katrina hit Mississippi, it hit Key West first. It was a Cat 1 storm. It went to the Gulf. It kind of stalled out and gained strength. It became a Cat 5 storm. At one point, it was the strongest storm ever recorded, I believe. It subsided but it, it was heading towards Pensacola, kind of waggled towards New Orleans, and then ended up going to Mississippi. And we were staging in anticipation of it going to Pensacola. We had a convoy of about 500 people, mostly National Guard, first responders, search and rescue people. And Craig Fugate, who was our head of emergency operations and then served with President Obama eight years as the head of FEMA, called me up at 11 o'clock at night and said, Governor, I think we need to keep going. The storm's not going to hit us. We need to keep going. So we did something that the rule, rule books say you can't do, which is we crossed state lines and were the first responders in the six-county area of southern Mississippi. 
And the storm was devastating. Hmm. The storm surge was incredible. So for three or four months, it was the Florida police officers, deputy sheriffs, city managers. We were operating local government because all of the people that worked in southern Mississippi were displaced. That kind of cooperation and that kind of just spirit you know, happens when you're, when you're well-trained and when you're, you know, you're on fire to do the right thing. So more often than not, Florida gets this stuff really done right. In other states, you could see Louisiana struggled with Katrina. Other states that didn't have a commitment to resource their divisions of emergency management or didn't have the training capabilities, they really struggled. I want to wrap up by asking you what you're doing now. What occupies your days and nights? My son and I are partners, which I recommend highly. We have an advisory business. We help mostly emerging businesses that are that have great ideas and help them with strategic advice and helping them develop their markets. There's a lot of businesses like that now in Florida, which is a lot of fun. And then we have a we partner with private equity firms. We invest alongside them to help businesses grow. And we've done in the last four years, we've done 10 deals totaling about $250 million of equity investing in these businesses. And it's been a good time to be doing that. We're now raising a fund to do the exact same thing in a fund structure rather than deal by deal. So business is great. The foundation that I'm the chairman of, we work in 40 states to advocate meaningful reform of our K-12 system. This last year, I've slept with my wife every night which is a blessing. I haven't been on a plane, but one time. So I worry about our country. I worry about a lot of people that have suffered because of COVID, but the Bush family is totally blessed. Listen, thank you so much. And uh, I will, hopefully I'll see you in Maine. Yeah, I hope so too. I really appreciate waking up every morning reading news items. Well, thank you very much. Your your son, uh, Jeb, is a 100% reader. And your son, George, is also uh, a 100% reader. So I appreciate the Bush family support. John, that was a great interview, and obviously you have an angle with uh, former Governor Bush that no one else has, <laughs> certainly not in the in the media landscape. I was very interested in hearing his remarks on uh, immigration and saying that he's proud of the fact that elected officials in Florida don't get rewarded for saying stupid things about immigration. Yeah. I mean, when Jeb ran for president, he made immigration reform, quote-unquote, one of his lead issues at the beginning of the campaign, he felt very strongly that immigration uh, was vital to the country's health and economic future economic prosperity. Obviously, Trump went the other way and Jeb lost, but he remains steadfast in his belief that immigration is vital to the country's health and to its economic prospects. So our listeners heard a few choice cuts from uh, news items today, but if you want the all-time hits, you got to subscribe to news items. And subscribers, would-be subscribers, can do that by Googling news items John Ellis Substack. Go for the premium subscription. It's worth every penny. If you're interested in the global market of things, you have to read Rebecca's site, which is called investableuniverse.com. You'll be smarter 
and you'll know a lot more. All right. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with more of the news from our three major storylines, the financialization of everything, a world in disarray, and advances in science and technology. See you then. <laughs>